Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences, tips and inspirations. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and how to have as much fun as we can. Now here's your host, Karen O'Connor. I'm here today with Erica Bowen, who is a psychologist, a coach, and imagineer of the Hope Makers. Now, I met Erica because I was looking for somebody who could talk, come on the podcast and talk about toxic relationships. And when I saw Erica's background, I went, oh, you need to be on my podcast, please. Because she spent 20 years working as a psychologist in the field of family violence prevention in England and Scotland. And in academia, you were a professor at university. And now you've headed off on your own and you're helping coach other people to do what? Explain that to me. What do I help them do? I help them. I basically work with purpose-driven professionals. So that can either be other academics, it could be nonprofit leaders, it could be people that run social enterprises, or people whose business has a social impact as kind of their main mission, even if it's for profit. So I basically help them try and fulfill and meet their mission without burning out, because it's a really fine line to work in both of those arenas, to be that driven and to not actually burn out at the same time. Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because you, in that, I mean, I found as, and I'm only talking as a mother here, but it's constant giving with, yes. and you just keep giving because there's always something else to give to. There's never a, an end to what, no. what needs giving, you know? No, absolutely. And I think particularly if you're working in a field that is deeply personal to you and a lot of people go into academia to do research on something that is very personal to them or they have direct knowledge of or kind of have witnessed. The same with nonprofit leaders in particular, social enterprise leaders, people that are very purpose-driven. It's usually come from experience somewhere. Explain the psychology or if you go if you go and do psychology and you want to do a particular study on something that's happened to you, say you came yeah. out of a violent relationship. Yeah. <clears throat> When you put in a proposal to do that, mm. surely somebody must be going, do you think this is wise for you to do that? Absolutely. And I mean, it's one of those because every research program has an ethics review process, you know, regardless of whether or not you're an undergraduate student up to a full blown professor. And sometimes it's not always completely and utterly unethical, but it is an ethical risk. So the point of ethics is to, is to weigh the pros and cons, the balance of risk and how well that risk is being cared for. <clears throat> so if you are somebody who left a violent relationship many years ago, for example, and have to all intents and purposes very much moved on, but you've also got access to appropriate support should anything come up in the research process, then the likelihood is, depending on the nature of the research itself, which also carries its own type of risk, but if from that perspective, as long as you are safeguarded and your safety is looked after, then there is the potential for you to be able to lead a programme of research on that topic. The other part of ethics is about what you do with your participants and the data that you collect and how do you care for the people that are participating in your research. So if they are victims of domestic violence, for example, then how are you going to make sure that when they've taken part in your research, they are they haven't been harmed in any way, shape or form. 
emotionally, psychologically, you know, clearly physically. So that's where a lot of the broader safeguarding comes into place about how are you going to debrief them? Are they going to have access directly to support services during the process of your research? Are they going to have access to somebody being in the room with them if, for example, you're interviewing them about their experiences? There are lots and lots of safeguards that you have to go through to be able to do research in the field of domestic violence, particularly with, with very vulnerable people. But interestingly, research of vulnerability is again something that as researchers, for whatever reason, we kind of go, oh, I'll be fine because you know either I've been through it or because I'm a researcher. So we put on one hat and go, that's fine. I can do this piece of research and it will be perfectly fine without necessarily always thinking through potentially our own vulnerability. So it is an interesting, an interesting balance of, of risk and need because obviously we need research in some of these really sensitive topics, but we need to make sure that nobody is harmed during the process of doing the research as well. Explain to me, first of all, what a forensic psychologist is, what, what do you do? <laughs> but then also, how did you end up doing um, domestic violence? Is that yeah. your background or was that just an area that interested you? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. So a forensic psychologist, the definition kind of varies depending on the country that you're in. Broadly, it's a psychologist that works within a legal system or that has an interest in understanding legal processes. So you find forensic psychologists in the UK in particular, um, working with victims sometimes, sometimes doing, well, a lot of the time doing risk assessments of perpetrators of different types of crime, understanding criminal behavior and motivations. Um, but you can also be kind of an expert witness as a, as a standalone psychologist. You don't have to be a forensic psychologist. So for example, if, you've done research on eyewitness testimony, then you may be brought into a case to be an expert witness on the nature of eyewitness testimony and what we know about it. There are lots of ways that, that psychologists can kind of work within the law, as it were. As a forensic psychologist in the UK, a lot of the work, if you're a, a practitioner, is tends to be much more around risk assessment and working with perpetrators. The prison service employ forensic psychologists. Probation service occasionally do, there's not that many, but then there's a whole raft of independent forensic psychologists that will do a lot of assessments. So capacity assessments, risk assessments for family court proceedings, which I did for a while, risk assessment for violent and sexual crime, which I've also done. Um, so yeah, it's quite a, quite a broad church as a forensic psychologist and also, you can create and implement rehabilitation programs for offender groups and also support programs for victims. So it really does depend. You get kind of micro specialists within each of those. My specialism was family violence prevention. How I got there, um, a bit random in some ways. So I did an undergrad degree in psychology, came to the end of it and thought I want to do more. I just fell in love with psychology as a discipline. Had an idea for a PhD program, which I applied to several universities, got knocked back from every single one that I applied to. But right, that's interesting. So I changed tack. So I completely changed my, the, my proposal, sent it to another university who came back to me and said, we really like your idea, but we have no funding. Is that a problem? And I was kind of like, yeah, three years unfunded doing research is a huge problem. So, oh, well, won't be doing that. And anyway, over the summer break, I kept kind of going back to them saying, has anybody dropped out of their PhD program? You know, these things happen, life gets in the way. Is there a gap? 
And they said, no, but we're about to advertise a paid PhD studentship. You know, it's not really exactly what you were doing, but it's broadly in forensic psychology. Do you want the information? So I got some information. And the program of research was to evaluate a perpetrator program for well, domestic violence perpetrators that was based in the community in probation. And I applied and I got it. And, and that was kind of where it all started. So it was a very interesting twist of... I'm not sure I expected to end up here. <laughs> I think it wasn't planned. I didn't have childhood aspirations of even becoming a psychologist, to be honest with you. And um, yeah, so I did my PhD and then I worked for three years at a different university doing research on broadly kind of the factors that influence kids to get into antisocial behavior and crime and also the impact of domestic abuse on children. Um, and then I got a permanent academic lectureship and, and then just carried on working broadly in the field looking at domestic violence, dating violence, creating interventions for adolescents to use to be used in schools and creating programs for perpetrators to be used in the community and that's kind of yeah what, what I ended up doing that was my my work. Now this is this harks back to the reason that I wanted to talk to you because hmm. as I said to you when we had our initial conversation a friend of mine has been very vociferous about her previous toxic relationship sure. with her ex-husband. Mm. I found out recently that there was a there was physical abuse. I thought it was mainly right, emotional okay. abuse, but I understand that it was physical abuse. And I also understand that uh, her oldest child saw it as well. Right. And she's just recently announced that she's got back with him. And she's been slagging him off on the internet and she's, mm. she's high profile on the internet for four years, for as long as I've been following her, right. nearly five years. She just split up with him when I started working with her. And I was really shocked when she announced that she was going back to him because mm. I was just, wow, why would she do that when she's been so open about the yeah. impact that he had on her. And now she's saying, oh, no, I'm in love again and blah, blah, blah. I can't understand. <laughs> I can't get my head around this. And I've got no. I want to understand why that happens and where she's at now. And can you give me some, shed some light on the matter? <laughs> sure. Um, I can try, you know, and obviously each individual case is is very individual. But I think what's, what's also quite interesting is the fact that she'd had a period of time away from him and has gone back. It's not unique, but a lot of the time when women get to the point of leaving, that's it. They, they leave and they're, they're gone. But, you know, I think even within the realms of non-abusive relationships, we always, always have those people that we're deeply attracted to that we know potentially there could be the opportunity or, you know, with a strange twist of fate, you could end up back together again just because of the dynamics of, of the relationship as they were. I think with an abusive relationship, what is so challenging is to understand those dynamics because they seem from, from an outsider to be so so wrong on every single level. And I think the challenge with everything is <clears throat> when you're in it, a lot of the time you can't see it for what it is. You can't necessarily see what is happening. So a typical, not that, well, there really is a typical perpetrator abusive man will be very manipulative. So a lot of the time <clears throat> it will be changes in levels of control. So that might not be physical at all, but sometimes it can go there. But a lot of the time it doesn't have to be. It's not as though being physically violent is the thing they need to turn to in order to have the relationship they desire in their head. 
or feel that they deserve, which depending on their orientation, they can be incredibly entitled um, or incredibly dependent. So there are kind of broadly two camps in terms of some of the psychological characteristics of perpetrators. So for some, they may be quite narcissistic. A lot of people will imagine that they are the nicest guy on the planet. You know, there's nothing that you could imagine them doing to hurt anybody. And yet they are incredibly controlling, incredibly abusive, probably physically and sexually abusive as well. And you would not, you know, from an outsider's perspective, have no sense that that was necessarily going on. There are others who are potentially incredibly dependent. And so they become incredibly jealous because what they're scared of is the relationship breaking up. And strangely, what they then do is they kind of are overbearing. They are incredibly controlling because they're fearful of being left. And it's again, it's quite a strange paradox. But a lot of what happens is so insidious that women who are in those relationships don't even realise that's what's going on until something quite dramatic happens. So many years ago, and I was working in family court and even during my PhD research, talking to women who had experienced domestic abuse, they would kind of take it until they felt their children were at risk. And sometimes it was the point at which they realised their children could be hurt by them, that they were like, I absolutely over my dead body. He can do what he wants to me, but do not, do not touch my children. And that can sometimes be a kind of a, a, a real pivotal moment. But if you've got somebody who's incredibly controlling and by that they would be controlling finances, they'd be controlling where they go. They would be controlling what they wear. They'd be controlling how much time they spend with family, how much, which friends, if any, then this type of behavior, it kind of, it's kind of a creeping behavior. It will start off with small things and then it will just leach into every aspect of their life where you probably find that she, she kind of disappears from view because actually she's always busy. There's always something else that she's doing or somewhere else she needs to be or yeah. So your priority as a friend will kind of, kind of go down the ranks quite severely because of his influence on her behavior. So when you are in that dynamic, A, you don't really see it for what it is. Um, but it's also very hard to get out of when you do realise it. And what we do know is that if you've got a woman in an abusive relationship and she leaves and she gives you a, a rating on a scale of kind of zero to 10 of how likely she thinks that she will be abused again by this person, her rating is as accurate as most standard risk assessments. So even though they don't really understand what's going on, at the point at which they do, they also have a very clear understanding of how at risk they are. So at that point, we also need to, to believe them. The fact that she's gone back could be that due to a number of factors. It could be because she is convinced that actually no one else can be for her what he was for her. You know, And again, that can be a product of the abusive relationship because what you also have is the psychological abuse which most women will say is much more difficult to overcome than the, than the physical abuse because bruises, broken bones, they all actually heal. You know, there is physical evidence that they heal, but the psychological control, the psychological abuse is really, really difficult to overcome because somebody literally gets in your head, you know, and through gaslighting processes can make you feel that you're going mad, can make you feel that you can't trust your own judgment that there's something wrong with you, that you are the problem. And, you know, really extreme cases that actually that nobody else would go near you, you know, that you're lucky that you've got the person that you're with, because in some way you are so damaged that, you know, nobody else would, would dare go near you. And if you imagine having and receiving that message over a period of years, your self-worth 
completely disintegrates. And when you have no self-worth, then you're attracted to people that make you feel better about yourself, what, in whichever way that comes. So it's difficult to know exactly in your friend's case, but if that has been the dynamic of a relationship, then it's quite easy to see how actually on some level, she's going back to a, somebody she knows rather than somebody she doesn't know, her perception of risk around that could be that actually better the devil, you know, it could be his influence. We just don't know. You know, we don't know the type of relationship they've had since that time, because it's unlikely that they haven't had a relationship if she's decided to go back to them. So there are all sorts of things that, that kind of come in. It's just, it is very, very complicated. It is um, kind of because I know her on a personal level, so I don't mm. want to divulge anything that isn't no, already no, in the public arena. Sure. Um, she has kept a relationship with him because of the kids. And She's okay. done her very best to mm. create a friendly relationship in front of the kids. So they would still do things. She'd drop him off, yeah. at the, uh, drop the kids off at his place and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But even as recently, so they must have split up going on five years ago, even as recently as two years ago, she got on the internet one day so I'm not saying anything that isn't in the public arena here sure. she got on the internet one day and she said she just just dropped the kids off at his house and he'd she'd had these long extensions in her hair and she just mm. had a boob job done and he said to her you look like some ridiculous Barbie what are you doing walking around with my children while you're looking like that mm. now that was probably three years after they'd broken up if not yeah. more and she got on a live stream and she started talking about you know how she'd put up with this kind of abuse blah 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 so mm. it wasn't like it stopped when no. the relationship ended it was still and it very rarely does I mean particularly if you've got children involved particularly around those kind of custody arrangements you know and when you have a situation where a relationship ends and somebody is abusive I mean for some people, that will perpetuate into stalking behaviour. You know, not every perpetrator at all, not every abusive man will, but for some they do. You know, and this incessant need to remind their former partner of the role they played in their life is, is there on whatever level. But obviously, I mean, the other thing we've got, you know, the beauty of and the double-edged sword of is technology, where really, you know, it's very difficult to be completely and utterly separated from anybody now. And technology plays a very insidious role in domestic abuse now as well because of the surveillance stuff that you can put on people's phones but also you know the ability to contact people to track people to find people online is is greater than ever, at any point so it's very very difficult to be completely separated from somebody you've had a relationship with in the past going back to what you said earlier you made mm. a comment that women tended to make the decision to leave when mm the partner threatened their children then they say mm. you know he can do whatever he likes to me but he's not doing that to the children yeah why is that the case why is it the case because I think because they sometimes will see it as being their relationship problem and they don't see their children necessarily as part of that relationship in the same way because obviously the relationship that you have with your partner is very different to the relationship you have with your parents you know um and because they see themselves as a grown-up and as being a protector so at the point at which the aggression or control is directed at them they may even see themselves as protecting their children because actually well it's coming to me so my kids are fine so it's you've still got deep emotional maternal drives in most women who experience domestic abuse 
not all it has to be said. And I've worked with some women and encountered women where actually what they have found it really difficult to do is to put their children before themselves for a whole other raft of, of other reasons. And that usually is deeply embedded in a very, very, very difficult childhood and all of the, the things that come from that. But most of the time, women who are in abusive relationships will see themselves as still trying to protect and love their children first. And that means that if they're taking it, their kids are protected. The moment that switches, it's that kind of invisible line of there is somewhere that you do not go and that is near my children, you know, and the fact that people can rationalize that the fact that they can cope with it better than if their kids were targeted. What we know, however, is that even, even conflict, so normal conflict within relationships that is not well explained to children can have a detrimental impact on children. So when you then ramp that up to violence and abuse, even if kids aren't in the room, they will hear it. They will pick up on the emotional dynamic of it. They will be able to tell the temperature of a room the moment they walk into it. And that will last with them. So it's really hard to say that if you're in an abusive relationship and there are children present, that they are not also victims. Even if you think, well, I haven't, they haven't seen it. They weren't in the room, any of that. They will know because they live with you all the time. You know, you know when when mum and dad are happy. You know when mum and dad are not. You know when something is off. But if you're a small child and nobody explains to you what that is, then a lot of the time kids will just blame themselves because that's their default setting. That kind of well, if mum and dad aren't happy and I don't know why, then maybe it's me. Maybe I've done something, and then that can create a whole other chain of self worth issues that, again, if unaddressed, can can go into adulthood. And some of that can then lead into other people having unhealthy relationships because what they're trying to do is to fill their cup of self-worth but in unhealthy ways it's like a wormhole isn't it yeah (laughs) it's because there's no one answer to any question there's no one simple black and white here you go this is what it is there isn't and there are so many intricacies and so many perspectives to be kind of catered for in all of that because you could go well that's fine what you want to do is just you know to break up the family and you want him to go away a lot of the time in a heterosexual relationship where there is an abusive man he will be also financially controlling so if he is the breadwinner if for whatever reason he doesn't allow his partner to work or gives her an allowance you know which is also is an interesting on some sides, you know, it could seem quite generous, but actually is incredibly controlling. Then actually, if he's gone, then the financial basis of that family is also deeply disrupted, which is another reason sometimes why women won't leave, because financially they're hugely, hugely dependent. Because if you've been in a toxic relationship and your partner has told your family lies about you, told your friends lies about you, put horrific stuff about you on the internet. Um, made you feel like you can't go outside your house, made you feel as though you won't be believed even if you do talk to somebody, then where do you actually go? You know, it's just like from the outside, it can seem illogical because you're like, for God's sake, you know, you're living with that dynamic. You have the ability to choose on some level. There is always an ability to choose, but actually the ability to be present to the options in that moment is deeply limited by the experience and the dynamics and the fear Because, you know, these aren't kind of innocuous, oh, you know, he's possibly a bit of a problematic guy or he's a little bit controlling. 
there will be an undercurrent of fear all of the time. So again, it comes down to what's what's the risk. And what we also know is that the point of leaving a relationship is when a woman is at greatest risk. So it's counter to everything that rational thought <laughs> would expect because it's not rational. It's very functional. Abusive behavior really does achieve something for somebody, but it's not rational. In terms of prevention, how mm. do you prevent stuff like this? It's, it's really hard. I mean, we have, well, we don't, it depends where you are in the, in the world. In North America and Canada, there are some pretty good school-based awareness and education campaigns, particularly around kind of dating violence. But if you think about it, what you are, what you need is a, a general consensus that this behavior isn't good. And that, that kind of has to come, you know, at a societal level. And whilst we see that some of that messaging is happening, not all of that messaging is happening, you know, and we see it coming up and up again, the fact that, you know, violence against women and girls is still broadly acceptable. It's even worse when we get to talking about male victims, you know, because we're not even really ready to acknowledge that they exist in, in a way that is helpful for them either. And then when you get into sexual minorities, then we're, we're in a, a kind of a whole other world where there is very, very limited acknowledgement, very, very limited service provision, if any. So in some ways, and this is going to sound really odd, as a, a female victim, we've got it as good as it gets in terms of responses to violence. But that does not mean that they are, that it's a good response in any way, shape or form. It just means as a society, we are we're more willing to accept that women are victims, which is also an interesting perspective. But that aside, it comes down, it comes down to awareness. It comes down to having really consistent and harsh responses to it so that people don't feel they can get away with it. You know, so it's, it's not, we know that things like capital punishment, you know, they don't deter crime. What we have is a, a real challenge with domestic abuse because some of the behaviours involved by themselves aren't criminal acts. So it then requires a deep understanding of what domestic abuse looks like, really clear evidence collection for any authority should they ever become involved, which again is a very low likelihood, to actually react appropriately. And then obviously when you get into court, it tends to be a he said, she said, perpetrators are again, very, very manipulative. They're very good at manipulating systems, particularly if they are male perpetrators. Although we do see the same, again, particularly in family court, we see some, some women can also manipulate systems, but usually this happens when you've got a male perpetrator where they will have more power, you know, institutional power, emotional power, um, wealth. <laughs> usually if, if wealth is that divided, then obviously they can buy better lawyers. They can buy the support they need. They can buy the advice they need relative to a woman who is likely to be on the verge of losing everything if that relationship splits up, who doesn't have that resource. So there are a lot of other ways that this pans out in an unequal way. But yeah, you know, we need to have those messages that it's fundamentally not acceptable. We need to make sure that when people are identified as doing this, they are properly held to account um, and not glorified in any way, shape or form. <laughs> we need to have education programmes but we also need to then have, you know, really good support for people that are going through it. 
And again, that can be patchy. That's usually third sector, voluntary sector. Governments don't always provide the level of funding that is needed to meet the demand. So if you think that one in three women, one in four men are victims, that's a lot of people, you know, and that's without even thinking of the children. So what we have is a, an imbalance in response. So we are probably more likely to, to throw everything at a kind of a prosecution end than, as a, than at a victim end. Prosecution and criminal proceedings are incredibly expensive. In domestic abuse, they're also quite rare. Um, so what we really need are properly resourced victim support services, therapeutic services for victims and for families. Um, and working with perpetrators in a way that once they are identified can try and enable them to behave differently, to think differently. But that that's not a straightforward thing. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah. I, I was going to say that because that's assuming they want to change. <laughs> oh, of um, course. And in fairness, I mean, if you're doing something that works well for you, why would you? I know. But we don't, do we? You know, if we, if we engage in a pattern of behaviour, even if it is self-destructive, even if we believe we're getting something from it, if it meets a need in us, we will keep doing it. So then it comes into understanding what is the need that's being met by violence and abuse? What, you know, what is that about? Where has that come from? Can that be healed? And I use that word kind of advisedly, but you know, we have a really difficult line to tread in between holding people account for their behavior and enabling them to heal should healing be required if that's relevant to their abusive behavior. And for a large proportion of men who are abusive, women who are abusive, they have experienced their own forms of trauma in the past. Now that is not at all to dismiss their behavior, but that seed of trauma underlying it can play quite a direct role into why they then become violent and abusive. But also if you're, again, I mean, when I've, worked in family court, some of the stories there are deeply, deeply tragic, but people living in as children in some of the most horrific circumstances possible, you know, so it's not thinking about light trauma or, you know, trauma with a small T that some people are experiencing. It can be incredibly horrific and working out how they can become a responsible adult who is self-sufficient having gone through that and then holding them accountable to a standard of behavior that they've never been exposed to is really quite difficult because what we expect them is to be somebody in some ways that they can't be because of their experiences, you know, and it's, it's, it's a really, really difficult area to work in because it is about you. Fundamentally, you want to keep people safe. That's the whole point. You know, why else would you try and work with perpetrators? It's not because you're sympathetic. It's not because of anything, because you look at them and go, you're clearly the problem here. You know, the problem is not the victim. The problem is not the women. It's not the children. Your behavior and what you are about is the problem here. So how do we work with you? Can we work with you to try and help you stop being that way? And in some cases you can, you know, there are, with, with, with all forms of criminal behavior, there are a, a kernel of, a, you know, a, a small group where there is pretty much nothing that really can be done to change their behavior. But with others, there is some stuff that can be done. Whether or not we're doing it and whether or not we're doing it effectively then becomes a whole other question. But there are, there are ways of working that can be effective. Yeah, you then have to try and make sure that you're working with the most responsive and receptive 
individuals in order for any approach to actually work. And obviously, if you've got somebody who doesn't see their problems as being a behavior, that can be a real challenge because if they can't see it, if they don't understand it, then they're not going to want to engage or sometimes even be able to engage um, in anything that you you're trying to achieve with them. So yeah, it's, it's such a challenging area. Thanks for joining us this week on Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favourite player. And while you're at it, we'd love you to leave us a rating on iTunes or just tell a friend about the show. That would be amazing too. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode. And remember, if you're busy thinking about what you can't have, how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have?